Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. It's time for another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, the show that covers the pro game you know and love. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, from the Santa Monica Studios, and we've got a great one, a loaded one for you today to discuss all the action as the Wimbledon Championships reach their final stages. First up on the show, it's the first time debut on the podcast of the Hall of Famer Lindsay Davenport. She's got three Grand Slams, one of which was the 1999 Wimbledon Championships. Lindsay was so kind and gracious with her time. She discusses the memory of that championship run. She discusses the current day, the current final that is set between Ange Jabor and Marketa Vondrosova. Breaks down how we got to this point. Igas Fiontech stumbles on the grass. What Sabalenka's state of mind is going forward. The current state of American tennis and so much more. It's a phenomenal chat with Lindsay Davenport. Could not have been more gracious with her time. And then Gil Gross returns to the program. Gil, a host of several successful tennis podcasts, including three on our Tennis Channel Podcast Network. He also is one of the leading voices, if not the leading voice, on tennis social media, growing the game and breaking down all the analysis. We discussed the men's side, Novak Djokovic going for a record-tying eighth Wimbledon title. Who stands in his way? Can Yannick Sinner pull off the upset? Is Alcaraz destined to succeed at Wimbledon already? Daniil Medvedev's run to the semis. Chris Eubanks putting on a show in a Cinderella run. All that and more with Gil Gross. First up, it's Lindsay Davenport and his Tennis Channel Inside In, which starts right now. All right, now here we are on Tennis Channel Inside In, second week of Wimbledon Championship stages. Uh, honored to have this guest on the show. It's because I've been talking to a bunch of people here at Tennis Channel. This was on my list. She relocated from California. This was a little hard, but anytime she's in the state, four-time year-end number one, Hall of Famer, three-time major winner, including the 99 Wimbledon run. Uh, and now a pillar in the commentary community, too. Lindsay Davenport, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for finally having me, Mitch. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it was like I was you were my white whale in a lot of yeah, ways. We uh-huh. had to, you know, we had to get out there and go it. But what's interesting and so fascinating is we talked to a lot of different people about Wimbledon, the championships, all these memories that they had from their playing, coaching, or commentary career. It's pretty straightforward. You had the memory. Like, there's not, <laughs> oh, what was your favorite memory? Winning in 99 over at the time. Until Serena came along, the greatest of all time, Steffi Graf's last match in a major. It doesn't really get much sweeter than that. Yeah, it was a kind of an amazing two weeks. And sometimes you have to have things go your way. Obviously, it's it's mainly about the tennis, but all the little things that can go your way also help. You know, in the beginning of my career, I was awful on grass. Lost in the first round the one time I played in juniors. Lost in qualies badly. Barely won games uh, the one time I played in the qualies. Um, took a few grass court lessons from some veteran players like Natalie Tazier and Larissa Savchenko early in my career. Um, wasn't really sure that Wimbledon was in the cards for me. And by the time 99 rolled around, I'd played you know six or seven years now, at least for a few weeks on the grass and was feeling much more comfortable. Um, we had a lot of rain those two weeks, a lot of rain. Um, the schedule kind of worked out in my favor where I would somehow get my match in because I was mm-hmm. scheduled early. There were no roofs back then on center or court yeah. number one. So big backlog of matches. Um, and by the time I got to the final, um, really, 
it can go either way where you get to a final and you're so nervous. I was walking out there against Steffi. I mean, it was like, oh my, yeah. she's an enormous favorite. I'd never been to this stage at Wimbledon. Um, and for some reason, I was able to lock in and just play great tennis. Right at the time in the second set where we were on serve, I had won the first set. I think it was around three all, maybe three two. Mm -hmm. um, there was a slight rain delay. And I always look back at that. For some players that are up, it can kind of change the momentum the wrong way. But I came off the court, and I'll, it, it definitely helped me. I, m I remember saying to my coach, Robert, at the time, like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> yeah. I can't believe this is happening. And yeah. I remember he just looked at me, and he's like, I'm telling you, you got this. He's yeah. like, you know, X, Y, Z, but you, this is your match. You can do this. And I just remember that kind of settling me down. And when I went back out there, I had that attitude of, yeah, I can do this. That's crazy that, I mean, it's very, you know, forthright when you say that like a lot of players would take the delay and think about it like i haven't won this tournament before i'm playing a legend but you hit the reset button caught your breath and were able to hold it and, and also winning the doubles that year yeah Trina Moraro. and that's look i bring that up because another tremendous accomplishment you won both in the same year i don't know if we're going to see that ever in the near future yeah the williams were able to do that pretty pretty yeah. comfortably also but yeah i mean it was so crazy i i won the women's singles um, there was more rain scheduled. We, were, we played actually on Sunday because of all the rain. And so Pete and Andre were like waiting there on the court to go in right when we were done. I mean, yeah. I knew I'm like, oh, the forecast must not be great. I got to the locker room, was able to celebrate for basically all of 10 minutes. Um, and the referee was there like, can we please get your doubles on? No one <laughs> yeah. wanted to come back on Monday. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. You wow. know, I didn't even go to press immediately. It was right back out onto court number one for the doubles final. I come off that, um, Pete had just won, and they were trying to get us to do a photo shoot. Pete didn't want to come back Monday for anything either. Yeah. Um, so everything happened kind of in a whirl. And then also in the locker room, there was a lady there with like five or six dresses. I didn't pack a dress. I thought no <laughs> way in hell was I gonna go to the Wimbledon ball. Yeah. Um, so everything kind of happened. Then next thing I knew we were off to the Wimbledon ball. And yeah. so um, maybe not your traditional way of winning it where you have for the women a lot of times, you know, 24, 36 hours before you go celebrate. Um, it all kind of got sped up for me. And two SoCal kids, you and Pete winning Wimbledon that year. I know Pete had a, a bunch, so it yeah. wasn't, but like that's got to be a cool feeling as well that from the area, and we could talk about maybe like what's in the water out here at the time, but it was, and it still is, but at the time when you came up and Following the waves of Pete, Tracy Austin before that, that California hotbed was just exceptional. Yeah, even more so than that. You, you know, we all grew up in the same club, like mm -hmm. in Palos Verdes, uh, the Jack Kramer Club. We all spent time, all three of us, with Robert Lansdorp as well. Um, so it was really kind of interesting. Pete's youngest sister, Marion, was closer to my age than Pete was, and I spent a lot of time practicing with her. I knew the family pretty well. Um, so it it is kind of cool when you look back and think mm -hmm. of – you know, similar to Nick Boletari and what he did for a lot of players on the East Coast, Robert Lansdorp really did a tremendous amount for those of us developing our games on the West Coast and in yeah. Southern Cal. Um, and we all kind of, you kind of feel like you're part of like a little sorority fraternity or, or whatever, just like a little group when you come through the same area. Um, and so it was, it was pretty awesome to win with Pete. I have to also add, just to, to put a bow on this, it's got to be cool to see the player that you beat, Steffi Graf, you know, this past year, she was following your footsteps getting into hockey. I saw her at all the Vegas <laughs> games. So yeah. her and Andre are just, you know, representing the Knights now. Yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got to be a sports fan yeah. um, when you're involved in professional yeah. sports. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some kind of, like, ownership deal. They're yeah. also in Vegas with the Golden <laughs> yeah. Knights. But, you know, they're, they're awesome. And she was a remarkable champion. 
um, different than, you know, all these champions have their own kind of personality, but something that drove Steffi was just her utter refusal to lose. And she was so good at that. Um, you know, I remember when we were leaving the court, you do these interviews and Bud Collins was talking to Steffi first. I couldn't hear it. I was just held a, like a few feet away. And then when Steffi was done, he called mm -hmm. me over and, and Bud said, so Steffi says that's her last Wimbledon. I was like, what? Yeah. And I remember coming off the court and I just won Wimbledon. And that was like the question. I was like, no way. She's like 29. I think she <laughs> maybe had just turned 30 like the week before. Yeah. And remember thinking, gosh, she just won the French, the final of Wimbledon. And she just was like, yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. I just respect it. I and mean, she played enough tennis. That yeah. was it. And she went out on her own terms. Well, as we kind of transition to what's going on the current day, and I always ask this with former players, but your thoughts on kind of how the game and the shape of the game has gone? Because from the outside, my perspective, I feel like the depth and the middle level of the WTA is as strong as it's been since I've started following it. We're trying to transition to new champions, and some have set themselves apart. But do you see it the same way that the mid-level, like some of these not even seated players are as good as any top 10 player. Yeah, no question. And I think it was a huge move for both tours to go to 32 seeds when they did. It was like when I played for most of my career, it was only 16 seeds at the majors. And they just didn't feel the depth with this there. And somewhere along the line, they felt it was. And there's no question the players ranked mm -hmm. 20 through about 80 are much more skilled. And, and I also think the overall athleticism across the board. Right. Of course, we like Steffi or, or Martina Navratilova. Of course, the Williams. Of course, we've had those players come through that have just right. been off the charts great athletes. They might have stood out more back yes, then. Yes, but then now you look across yeah. the rankings and you look at everyone and you think, gosh, they would really could have been successful in any sport they chose. That wasn't always mm -hmm. the case. At, at certain points, there was great players. Um, I'm really waiting, and it's starting to happen on the women's side. It, it Love to have the rivalries, but you need the absolute best players playing each other in the, the biggest matches. That is something that hasn't been there in women's tennis in you know, the last seven, eight years or so. That I'm really excited about. I hope also we get all the players, the top players, the big names back competing regularly and healthy. Osaka's, you know, given indication she's going to come back mm -hmm. after having a child. That would really give oh, um, yeah. a bigger boost even to women's tennis. And, you know, hopefully we even get the players that are taking breaks right now that needed them. Muguruza or Anna Samova. There's, there's a whole host of them. Yeah. Um, Level-wise, I think that the players at the top are playing at an exceptionally high level. Um, but, you know, I look back, I, I remember watching a match about six months ago, and I think it was Capriotti and Serena from the U.S. Open. I'm going to get the year wrong, so call it 20-some years ago. Okay. And, gosh, that seemed like, you know, those yeah. two athletes playing <laughs> each other. So there yeah. were pockets of kind of great tennis, uh -huh. you know, 20-some years ago. But I think across the board and across all rounds, it's, it's pretty high level these days. Yeah, and it's you can look at the numbers by names. I'm with you, by the way. I think 32 is great because I don't think it's necessarily fair for a 17 seed to draw. Like Joe, Listen, it happened to me twice. Really? I played the 17 seed in the first round, and it sucked. <laughs> so let me tell it's, you, it's I'm like, anybody. how is this happening to me? Yeah. It, it didn't seem right. Yeah, the argument that you can have great first round matches still with one versus not fair yeah. to those players that work so hard for that yeah. ranking. Well, the match that we, you know, it's funny because I have two sets of notes. I had to throw the other ones out because we're recording literally right after Anjibor pulled another comeback trail. And she's just collecting. I mean, Djokovic called it scalps the other day. I won't go that far. But she's beaten three straight major champions, two Wimbledon champions on the on the trial along with Sabalenka. How she did it down 4-3, a set and a break in the second. And really chopping down Sabalenka. I, I always marvel at what Anz does on the court, Lindsay. 
but the fight and the variety, she's a true problem solver. Like, she doesn't have one plan, and then that's it. She really figures it out, and you could not ask for a better ambassador for the sport than what Anshabur is. Truly. I mean, I, you've yet to meet anybody, player, an official, someone who works in the game, um, that has a negative word to say about her. And, and that, to me, is something she should be most proud of. You know, everybody um, adores her that is lucky enough to get to know her. You watch her play, and you could see a couple of years ago she was different. And sometimes, you know, in the commentary booth, you're pulling your hair out. Why are you trying that shot? You know, like three or four yeah. years ago. Um, then you started, I, excuse me, then I started listening more to her interviews and her talking about how the freedom and she doesn't want to get bored and how, you know, her coach Isam has really kind of adapted everything towards right. her to try and let her thrive in, in the environment that she's most comfortable in. That says a lot about kind of the working relationship um, that goes on behind the scenes. The thing that I'm just most, and I say proud even though I don't know her, that gets me the most excited watching her is how she's kind of overcome her own self-doubt. And, you know, there have been matches before where she's just kind of put her head down and hasn't liked the way she's played. And, mm -hmm. and I, I don't like to say go away because you know she's trying, but hasn't really dug her heels in. Yeah. I mean, that is two wins in a row. Down the first set to Rabakina, loses the first set to Sabalenka. She even went as far as to getting down a break against Sabalenka but she stayed the course. Mm -hmm. She easily could yeah. have just kind of yeah. said like, ah, oh, this isn't meant to be again. Yeah. I had my chance last year. She didn't. And she's given herself another chance, um, which has been pretty awesome. Love to see the improvements players make from year to year. For sure. Sometimes it's getting in better shape. Sometimes it's a certain shot. Other times it's overcoming their own yeah. fears. And uh, it's been fun to see that with Jabir. I mean, I'm super impressed with her health holding up. Because there was, what, was what, two months ago? We were like, what's the form going into the French Open? She's coming off an injury. Had some lackluster results that were deliberately health back. But she found something at RG. And tennis players, you know, like, it, it builds. She built on that. She had momentum. And she's looking better than ever. I completely agree. The serve was the other part that I think she's really worked on. Yeah, getting some kind of free, kind of tricky first, mm -hmm. uh, points with the first serve. But so Andy Roddick always, uh, he taught me, you know, when you get down under in the beginning of the year, you do the eyeball test. Mm -hmm. You can tell by looking around in the locker room who has done the work, who has not. Mm -hmm. And I remember him telling me that, I mean, how many years ago now, 20 or whatever <laughs> it's been. Yeah. Um, he's like, oh, I could tell when I got to Australia. Like, I knew he, this was him talking that I put in a lot of hard work in the offseason. I didn't want anyone to outwork yeah. me. And I could look around and see who's done that. It was so interesting. When Jabir took the court in Australia, her knee was heavily taped. She wasn't as fit as we'd seen previously. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, she's really injured. Yeah. Like, she came into Australia. She mm -hmm. didn't play well. It was a couple days later she announced she had to have surgery on her knee, mm -hmm. had put it off to try and, and play well in Australia. Then we saw her show up in Indian Wells. She had to pull out of, you know, her favorite swing in February, the tournament's in the Middle East. She shows up in Indian Wells, still not really quite right. ready, but she talked about, I didn't want to miss more time. I wanted to start getting my game in gear. Then she started to play a little better in April, and then her calf. You know, so mm -hmm. you're thinking, gosh, this has really been kind of a, a nightmare year for Ons. And again, something else she's had to overcome, right? Yeah. These major injuries. She even had surgery this year, um, but she's worked hard. She's now obviously much better physical shape than she was to start the year. And it's paying off with a, another chance yeah. to win a Grand Slam title. Calf look good when she's jumping, kicking the tennis ball. Yeah, exactly, right? And that can be a tough injury to get yeah. over. Yeah. Um, but really, she's gone through a lot and really, really happy for her. I'm also impressed, too, I mean, how much she enjoys being out there, the flair that she has, which is great to see. She's got people outside the tennis bubble, 
Like my sister will text me about Anshibor, and she's not like a diehard, diehard like that. But, you know, I, I just, the love she has for the game, the fact that she also, I mean, every metric there is for tennis players from where she's from, she has. Like it's, you can find a stat, she is that player. And it's almost being taken for granted in a way. Like this is a true pioneer. That board gets thrown around a lot, but she really has walked through the door for the first time in a lot of regards. Yeah, and, you know, it's something that when we're, excuse me, when I'm commentating her matches, it's like I'm so hesitant to even discuss it too much because it just seems like I have no idea. I mean, we read about everything she had to go through, um, how just unprecedented her as a female also growing up in that area, not having the access to a lot of tennis courts in Tunisia, her refusal to kind of move away and do Mm -hmm. the academy thing at a young age, how far her parents would have to drive just to find a tennis court. It's, it's really kind of overwhelming. You almost feel, I mean, I almost feel like so bad. I could just walk out and just Mm -hmm. walk onto a tennis court Mm -hmm. and publicly in the United States anytime that, you know, I felt like practicing. So, you know, everything that she's done and how many doors that she's opening for Arab women, for African women, all of it is, is got to be overwhelming for her. And, and, you know, there's obviously that series on Netflix. Yeah. Breakpoint. I always Break. want to say point break. So <laughs> it like always movie. takes me a second. Exactly. It's just like, that like, Neptune's nest a little bit ago. Exactly. So, uh, like, don't get yeah. this messed up on Breakpoint. She was the player I learned the most about mm-hmm. in, in, in seeing those kind of images and the, and the footage from her off mm-hmm. the court with her husband and her team. Um, and that was awesome to even get yeah. that kind of glimpse into her and how she mm-hmm. kind of tries to handle everything and how truly famous and well-known she is in her area. What's the Wimbledon championship photo on her phone the second she loses? Now she's back in the final. It's just tremendous stuff. Yeah. For Arena Sabalenka, it was, you know, a heartbreaking loss, one match away from number one, but still the consistency, three straight major semifinals. Tough way to go out, but her game is so fascinating because... There are pitfalls. She can kind of, you know, go south in a, in a lot of ways. But the power is still otherworldly. She's, I guess, prone to some swings, I would say. But there's still a lot There's still a lot of just clay to be molded, I think, which is scary to think based on what she's already accomplished. Yeah, she's taken a lot of steps forward. But I got to tell you, there's going to be a lot of scar tissue left over from the Roland Garros defeat and now the mm-hmm. Wimbledon defeat. Match point in the semifinals of Roland Garros. Yeah. She had taken control of that matchup, 5-2 in the third then lost 20 of the next 24 points. Yeah. Just kind of came unglued. We saw the old arena in that match. Came back at this Wimbledon. She seemed to be really focused, seemed to be able to put that behind her. But I don't know, up a set yeah. in 4-2, then serving 4-3, a couple of points for 5-3. And all of a sudden, just the same thing. She was you know, kind of falling over and not being yeah. stable with her body. She was looking around more. Um, it kind of rattled her again. Mm-hmm. So now missed the chance to be number one by one set. She's missed the chance to play in a Wimbledon final, just like she missed the chance to play in a Roland Garros final. So there's a lot there for her to have to process. I mean, sometimes it's easier to just lose like two and two. And I know that sounds terrible, (laughs) but for a tennis player, maybe easier to process come the next major. She's bounced back before. She's put probably the most work in that that all these top players have put in. Um, But there's going to be some more stuff for her to have to work through if she's going to win a second major. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
North Lindsay Davenport here on Tennis Channel Inside In. We're going to have another first-time major champion. We're going to have our third major champion of 2023 because it will be on Jabor versus Marketa Vondrosova. Vondrosova in her second major in her second major final at age 24 had never made it past the second round of Wimbledon, and here she is in the final. And I got to say, watched every second of that Spitalina match. There was a little dip, obviously, in the second set, but she played pretty lights out and played with the full bag of tricks, a lot of variety, had a great serving day, was feeling it in the lack of a better term. But for Vondrosova, another one of those, like we said, mid-level players that wasn't seated, had the injury stuff, didn't look like an unseated player today. No, and I think that all changed with her win against Pagula. I didn't think watching her play Pagula that she actually thought she could win that match. I think it was she a was a crazy match. There was all this pressure on Pagula <laughs> yeah. to try and get to her first semi. She had lost, I believe it was six quarterfinals in the Grand Slam mm -hmm. stage up to that point. She really wanted it. And here comes Vondrosova, who's like, well, I cannot believe I'm in a Grand Slam, especially Wimbledon quarterfinal right yeah. now. Let's just play. Oh, I'm down 1-4 in the third. And all of a sudden, she just started to get a little bit sharper. Pagula took her foot off the gas a little bit. And, and here she comes into a semi. Yeah. was curious how Vondrosova would feel in the semi. Much different against Svitolina than it, if it had been Sviantec. I yes. think Sviantec would have been a, a much bigger challenge for her. And... Svitolina, though, looked exhausted in this match. I right. think more so emotionally. Mm -hmm. Huge win over Azarenka and then a monster win over Sviantec. And she played, unfortunately for Svitolina, the worst match so far at Wimbledon for her. Yeah. And it, it turned out to be in the semifinal. And Vondrosova, solid as can be, the forehand was working until she got a little tight in the second. But a, a huge credit to her for being able to pull through those final two games. And, you know, you could see it in her face afterwards. Like, I yeah. cannot believe this. <laughs> like, it's a lot for her. Um, but, gosh, now going into the final, that's the job of her team to convince her you can win this. Yeah. And I think she has a better chance against Jabir than she would yeah. have against Sabalenka with all that power. I mean, she makes the French Open final in 19, and, you know, the draw opened up, but she was an unknown. And then it didn't kind of happen. There was injuries, issues. She's still someone that is an Olympic silver medalist, has had some big wins, beat Jabor twice this year. I know she wasn't in the same form, but this isn't a player that's just completely out of nowhere. Like, she's played and beaten some of the very best. So I think there is an opportunity here. I agree. I, I just wanted your perspective, too, as someone that's perfect to ask. Were there days when you woke up and you know, like, okay, I'm feeling it serve-wise? Because I feel like with some of these players, Vondrosova, especially today early, like the serve was going higher rate than most. Like were there days that it take warm-ups, a couple games? When do you know when you're in like that service zone? I think for every player it's a little different. For me, it would be after the first game. I always felt like, and, and that doesn't make any sense, and I know things can get better over the course of the match. Listen, I never said that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wasn't crazy yeah. mentally. But yeah. it would if I could go out there and I always felt like it was really important for me to be ready to go in the first service game. So, you know, everything I would do in warm-up would be to, okay, I want to be able in the very first game to serve, at, again, we're talking many, many moons ago, <laughs> you know, 105 to 110 right out of the gate. And there's a lot of players that would love that. <laughs> well, <So. laughs> I saw a lot of 120 yeah. pluses here this tournament. I yeah. wasn't able to do that. but um, And then you felt like, okay, if I could do that, then I would feel a lot better about my serve. And so, you know, different players, I, I do think that's one thing across the WTA that that could and should change is a little bit more pride, take a little bit more pride in hanging on to your serve. Mm. You don't have to be super tall to have a great serve. You can still have an effective cool. serve if you learn the different spins, if you learn to kind of master all the placements. You know, I was always taught when you step to the line, yeah. of course you have your favorite serves. 
but you have to be able to serve to your opponent's weaknesses also. And if your favorite serve, let's say, is go to the forehand and your opponent doesn't have a good backhand, if it's four all in the third break mm -hmm. point, you better be confident mm -hmm. enough to go to the backhand. So I was always really diligent in practicing every serve to every yeah. location. So when I gave myself a chance to be able to go any yeah. which way, I just feel like some of the players maybe don't do enough of that, you know, yeah. and maybe some of the players that maybe aren't as tall. But, you know, for the most part, on this surface, it's it helps so much yeah. if you can step to the line and know you can hold. It's more to serving. It's a great lesson, more to serving than MPH yes. or KPH if you're not American. <laughs> you know. um, no, it's it's true, and it props to Vandrasova against Fidelina, just a tremendous run, fought so hard, which is no secret there. Really, you know, having a child and coming back with this door open, really, Kim Kleisters is the first one in this modern era. I mean, I know you had your child too as well. All these women like yourself that come through and prove that you can have a child, come back, still play your best or close to your best level, it's going to be a very cool thing to see the emerging moms. Because I just remember, like, what, five, six years ago, hardly any new mothers on tour, and now there's a, you know, Yeah, a I mean, number. obviously, Serena kind of changed that narrative. When you have the most famous female athlete of all time mm -hmm. have a baby yeah. and then come back at a really high level, made a yeah. number of Grand Slam finals. You know, we also had Azarenka as well. Yeah. Um, here comes Osaka. At least she's given every mm -hmm. indication she wants to come back. I'm not sure we can convince Barty <laughs> to nice. come back, but that would be super do, do you cool. Think, like the focus too is what I was kind of thinking. Like when you come back, it's a commitment, right? You you don't have the luxury of just oh, I'm going to come back and play a little. It's like you don't have to come back, but if you do, okay, better be sharp here because you have other pressing it's, issues. It's, it's interesting in, in how these players try and manage it. You know, I was put in a situation where my husband couldn't travel. And so we kind of, I, I definitely took a couple steps back of playing a full schedule just because was not going to be on the road, <laughs> taking, you know, our son yeah. away all the time. Um, and so everybody's different. You know, Taylor Townsend had a great interview about it. I read this, you know, last year at some point, and she's like, listen, the reality is for most of us that choose to have a baby and go back to work, we do not have the resources to be able to just travel with our kid. Wouldn't that be nice? And mm. she was basically saying, gosh, I would love it if I was Serena or Azarenka or whoever yeah. to be able to afford to do that. But the reality is I can't. So for me to come back on this tour, you know, I have to leave Aiden, my son, at yeah. home most of the time. And that is really hard also. So I think for, for certain players that may be lower in the ranks, it's yeah. not a great feasible option sometimes we're seeing some of the the higher ranked players the players that earn more be able to do it with a little bit more frequency right. um but it's an awesome story and i think for players like wozniaki players like osaka players that see svitolina come back had her baby eight months ago ready to yeah. go has the support of her husband or her baby was not at wimbledon that kind of inspires them yeah. and uh no question that played into wozniaki's decision a little bit <laughs> Yeah, you, you can even go outside of the top sphere, Serenko, other players that have just continually came back. And it, it's really cool to see them. I'm happy it's trending in that direction. Vandrasova in the final, that Martina effect just still going. Like it's <laughs> Lefty just another check. one. Yeah. yeah. We had Kvitova, we had her. <laughs> Safarova got very close at, yeah. at the French Open, not, not so close at Wimbledon, but there's something about a lefty check. You know, we even had, I mean, I know Karolina Pliskova is yeah. a righty. She's got a twin lefty, but she was in the Wimbledon final. Um, they grow up, I believe, also. They spend some time indoors in the winter. So those courts typically a little faster, yeah. a little bit more comfortable maybe on the quick courts. But, you know, Martina certainly has inspired and continues to inspire every single generation that comes through.
Yeah, and uh, you know we're lucky to have her here. Everything's great with her, which is good. Yeah. Um, a couple more things with Lindsay Davenport before we wrap this up. This has been a blast. The American women, not the strongest results, obviously. Do want to give a shout-out to the player you've worked with, Madison Keys, a quarterfinal run, loses to Sabalenka. But the consistency she's had in majors has been pretty good. Like, she's up to over 90 major wins, like has gotten to the second week a bunch of times. When you look at her game, and I know – you know, getting o- older in age relative for tennis terms, what's the final step? What's the hardest step for her to get to, you know, the very top of the top? She is right there. Between the years. And she knows that. And those of us who are in her corner and love her to pieces, you know, we all know that also. I mean, the steps that she, the turn that she was able to, to make from the French Open, she lost in the second round to Kayla Day, an American qualifier, to truly just thinking like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore to being able to turn it around just like that and be able to win Eastbourne, get to the quarters of Wimbledon. First set was old Madison against Sabalenka. Obviously Sabalenka puts a lot of pressure on players, but all of a sudden after she had won so many matches playing such structured tennis to win an Eastbourne, all of a sudden the shot selection went off against Sabalenka. That's nerves. You know, all of a sudden we saw more backhands trying to go line early in rally. She changed that in the second set. Good sign for her that she was able to make that adjustment in mid-match, in a big match. Um, But that's what needs to change. She needs to go into some of those bigger matches just believing and playing the right way, playing the percentages. Amazing run for her. Mm -hmm. Um, She's now back into the top 16. She was not in a good place after Paris. So hopefully she comes into, which could be the most successful part of the year for her, this U.S. Open series swing and uh, continue with the momentum. Yeah, it's such a long, I don't want to say slog, but a long journey as a tennis player. There's going to be ups and downs. It's staying the course, staying the fight, and also taking advantage of your opportunities. We know about the major final. There's never a guarantee you get back, so you have to keep building habits, and it was good to see her turn the page because it was a low point after the French Open, but strong run at Wimbledon. No shame in losing to Sabalenka. Same results kind of for the American women. Coco lost a tricky matchup to Kennan early, and Pagula now 0-6 in quarterfinals. These are two outstanding tennis players, but they are. It's like that final boss in a video game. You just, to get to that level, it takes the very best and takes a four, I think, a consistency that you need to have when your best game isn't there. Yeah, you know, one thing that troubled me most with the American results at Wimbledon was one qualifier, just one, Ooh, yeah. on the men's and women's yeah. side. Only Sophia Kennan got through. Now, she's an exceptional player, but... Normally, in years past, we would always say, ah, the French, it's it's mm. tough for us, but, you know, get us on the faster surfaces. Then all of a sudden, you're yeah. looking like, oh, my gosh, we only got one mm. through the qualities. Now, we have a ton of players in the main draw. Mm-hmm. But you want to keep that developmental part going. Um, you know, this this side, we had so many American women into the top 100. Now we got to push to get back into the top 20, yeah. back into the top 10, and kind of get those numbers up. Um, there's a lot of really good juniors. Yeah. Um, because my son's in the juniors, I've gotten to know so many of this. Like, we're on the verge. There's a player coming through, Darwin Blanche. He's going yeah. to be a Grand Slam <laughs> champion. He's 15 years old. He's awesome. Got to the semis of the junior French. He's back in the semis of junior Wimbledon. Um, good things are on the horizon. I think got to give him a few <laughs> more years. We'll give him some yeah. time. But the same on the women's. Clervy and Gununaway as well. She's still in Wimbledon juniors. There's a lot of, of positive things coming. And hopefully that generation that's there now can kind of help that transition for these youngsters coming through also. It's tough when you follow, like this group is following. I mean, like you yep. followed 
a legendary crew. And then you got the Williams sisters, and now they're following, you know, chasing ghosts in a way. Like, it's impossible to live up to that. And there is pressure in that regard. I think especially for the American men slash boys coming through, I mean, I mean, last year at the U.S. Open, Roddick was like, "God, oh, can we stop saying the last American male to win a major with <laughs> yeah, him? And what yeah. was it in 2000? Yeah, 20 years coming yeah, up. Yeah, exactly, 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So I think that has to, we have to get over that. Mm-hmm. We've been lucky on, on the American women's side. You know, we got, obviously, Venus and Serena, two of the mm-hmm. greatest of all time that were just mm-hmm. awesome. We had Sloan kind of pull through. I mean, we so Kenan Kenan got the one, as yeah. well, exactly. Yeah. So, but the men, we got to get that all all court game developed. Mm-hmm. And Blanche has done a wonderful job developing his game. He's been in Spain the last couple of years with yep. Ferrero. Um, so hopefully that kind of gets it going. We have that great group now with Fritz and Tommy Paul and you know Opelka, Francis. Got to get though the Grand Slam trophies. Got to yeah. get those big wins. Yeah. Absolutely, couldn't agree with that anymore. Uh, before I let you go, I did want your thoughts on Iga on the grass. You know, loses a tough one is Fidelina. And I'm not, look, tennis is a hard sport, as you know. There are, there were up until the big three and Serena specialty surfaces for players that did better and didn't have their best stuff on their worst surface. I don't think there's anything to alarm at Iga, but I wanted your perspective on why it hasn't happened on the grass and what you see could enable her to get that Wimbledon title one day. Yeah, I mean, she's the best clay court player, no question. So what does that mean? That means she likes a little bit more time. I think also the grass just slightly negates her biggest strength, her footwork. She's got a lot of strengths, Mm -hmm. but all of a sudden, it's not as easy to slide. We did see her slide on grass, but also be able to get up and change direction on that surface, something she does so well on the hard courts, but especially the clay. The most alarming thing about watching Iga was in that that match against Svitolina, she just broke down emotionally. You know, she's and the players in the locker room know she's so accustomed to winning. If there's any way you can stay with her and kind of keep the pressure, which is proved challenging, but keep that scoreboard pressure on, she does start to doubt herself. I mean, she was leaving the court on center court to go change, and she literally walked 50 feet out of her way to bark at her camp. I, I think she was talking to her psychologist, but they were all sitting there to then walk the 50 feet back to get off the court, changes, comes back and does the same thing. And, and you know, for a player, I mean, you would never see Graf do that, no. right? Graf, like, I mean, she's maybe an exception, <laughs> but, like, what is she doing? She's one in the world. If, and then people get upset, but just kind of to go out of her way, that part to me was like, wow, that's so strange from a, from a number one. You get down on yourself, yes, but to walk over and show it so publicly, that was kind of alarming. But I would never count Iga out of it. You know, she's no. coming back in. Didn't play great leading into the U.S. Open last year. That'll be a huge point for her to really try and play better in Cincy and Canada. Um, but we'll see what kind of pressure she feels in New York. I know. It's got to defend that title, yep. too. And there's some, some new contenders on her heels. Uh, lastly, how do you see the final? What do you see the key to the final being with Anja Bourne, Von Drusova? Von Drusova coming in as the unexpected finalist. Anja Bourne return trip, 3-3 three and three head-to-head. What's the key to this matchup? Uh, well, f- I mean, for sure the nerves for both of them. And uh, Jabur with a little bit of an edge there, having played in a Wimbledon final, she wants it badly. The one thing I'm concerned about with Jabur is what she has left. I mean, she took out two of the huge favorites in Ravakina yeah. and Sabalenka. And sometimes it's happened where the player does all the hard work mm-hmm. and they get to the final and they're just maybe a little flat. Also, let's see the start that Vondrosova gets. Like, does she feel free? Because she didn't play so free the last, like, 20 minutes of that mm-hmm. win over uh, Svitolina. 
Um, how does she handle the occasion? Didn't handle the occasion great at Roland Garros a couple, four years ago. Um, she'll have that experience under her belt. We'll have time. It won't be about big serves and first strike tennis. This is going to be about creative tennis. We're going to see a lot of drop shots. Um, but I do give the edge to Jabir and uh, a huge opportunity for her to, wow, <laughs> You know, get her first Grand Slam title, but really break down even more barriers. It would be remarkable. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay Davenport, always a pleasure running into you talking <laughs> tennis. Last, actually, I did have one more. What's the best part about being a tennis parent? A parent? Oh, my gosh. I thought you were going to say commentator. No, <laughs> Besides the fact that your uh, son's not, really good. There's <laughs> not a ton about uh, yeah. being a tennis parent, I got to yeah. say. But, you know, I, I will say um, I have been, you know, you always have mentors, right, in, yeah. like, your sport. I mean, mm -hmm. how, like, Lucky or blessed am I that two of my best friends, Tracy Austin and Mary Jo Fernandez, older than me, have sons older than me that are amazing players. They help me so much. And um, Mary Jo is especially helping me kind of navigate all of this. Um, but it's been awesome. And do you, do you, you know, play that card at all? Like when you have to be like, okay, because I know some sons might not always listen to their mom. Like, come on. He's my son does. He's <laughs> okay. pretty good about that. I think it helps too. Yeah. Maybe with you know he has a different last name. I think that kind of helps when he goes okay. places. Yeah. You know, obviously if you're a McEnroe, like yeah, right, or true. an Everett, or you know, I mean, it is really tough um, if you have the name of of a legend. I'm certainly not a legend, but um, it, I mean, like, I'm not going to push back on that. No, I mean. no, no. There's there's like legend and then there's like yeah. people who were good. Um, but no, it's been fun to kind of stay in the sport in a lot of different ways. Being here as a commentator, um, you know, it's been yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, you get to know players. I mean, I knew Martina a little bit on tour, but to be able to spend these last yeah. like 15 years with her has been yeah. one of the biggest blessings probably of this job. Um, and now getting into the juniors, like, and I'm like, I know these kids, you yeah. know, I'm sitting there watching, you know, the, mm -hmm. the junior slams and, uh, you know, it's been pretty cool. Well, we're all rooting for Jagger and his career. <laughs> and you. I just remember him as like a 10 year old tall kid. <laughs> all around around here, the, I yeah, know. With the wavy now hair. he's taller than me. And yeah. like, uh, crazy. Uh, well, Lindsay, this was fun. Lindsay Davenport, a uh, great tennis commentator, also a Anaheim Ducks fan. Yes. Because her, her friend, little Marcia, Marcel Dion's daughter. <laughs> yeah, do you remember I that? Did, oh, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. My, my, when yeah. I grew up, my parents had King's season yeah. tickets. So, and then uh, Lisa Dion was one of my best friends mm -hmm. before dad Marcel got <laughs> yeah. traded. That's when I learned how sports know who, and team sports. didn't know who like, he was. Wait, like, what do you yeah. mean she's leaving? Yeah. Like, oh, uh, her dad's like going to a different city. I'm like, wait, wow. what? Uh, but no, hockey's always been one of my favorite oh, yeah. sports. It's the best. I mean, I yeah. don't know that I'm crazy about the Ducks thing, but whatever. Hey, yeah, get over hey, it. Yeah, we're we're all fans get over here. It. But and and it was cool that you know you got to go to all those games with little Jackson, can kinda, I, Jagger, kind of in there. Can I tell you yeah. the season they won yeah. the Stanley Cup was the season? Um, excuse me, was the year I was pregnant? Yeah, we went <laughs> to watch them win the Stanley Cup on. I'm going to get the day right. I believe it was Wednesday night. Okay, they won it. We had some friends on the team. Team Mussolini, who's a huge tennis fan of. <laughs> friend of ours Scott yeah. Niedermeyer a friend of ours and we're banging on the glass right in front of us when they won we were I was like in tears massively <laughs> pregnant I had Jagger three or four days later the first time my husband left the hospital on day two was to go to the Niedermeyer's house because they had the Stanley Cup there the cup party yeah oh, and he, I'm wow. like wait you're leaving wow. me he's like babe I'm going to see the Stanley Cup <laughs> I'm out of here you're fine in the hospital that's so, hilarious yeah that's, I mean hey I don't I'm not gonna ever defend leaving uh, just give birth wife but cup party Scott Niedermeyer. I had no chance then he's okay. like I'm out <laughs> well, well no I appreciate any hockey fan and honestly appreciate you spending time here on Tennis Channel Inside In hope to do this again in the future Anytime. but uh, best of luck to Jagger's success and keep on some phenomenal matches. Thank you.
All right, a huge thanks to Lindsay Davenport. It uh, is a real honor, as I said, to discuss anything tennis-related with the legend. Lindsay Davenport couldn't have been nicer. And uh, now that I know she's a hockey fan, we'll have to keep the chats going. Scott Niedermeyer's Cup Party. It's, uh, it's tough to beat if you can get there. But phenomenal stuff. Lindsay Davenport, always a pleasure. Now we switch to Gil Gross to talk about the men's side. Gil hosts the Monday Match Analysis. He's one of the leading commenters online covering tennis. He's also called matches on Tennis Channel's Airways, as you know. We break down the men's side. Novak Djokovic looks like he's destined for another Wimbledon title. Will, Yannick Sinner, Carlos Alcrest, Neil Medvedev standing in his way. We also discuss Chris Eubanks' Cinderella run. What's next for players like Matteo Berrettini and Holger Runa? All that and more with Gil Gross now on Tennis Channel Inside In. All right, now everybody on a new episode of Tennis Channel Inside In as we approach the championship weekend here to talk some men's semifinal and final action from Monday Match Analysis, from the three podcast, from Tennis Channel's Airwaves. Gil Gross back again. Gil, thank you for joining me in your Syracuse man cave. Thank you, Mitch. Uh, I appreciate it. It's a, a newly newly built uh, little background setup here, so I'm, I'm glad glad you like it. I think you like it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, it, the lighting is what gets me. I'm a big lighting guy. So I think, I think it's, it's good. It's got some good ambiance going. Always uh, great to be on. Thanks for having uh, me. I appreciate you taking time. You're one of the busiest men in not just podcasting, but keeping the Twitter sphere going on social media and, and growing the game. Uh, we're almost done with our third major of the year, which has been pretty crazy, but uh, you know, it, it feels like it went by fast in another sense. It did feel like we didn't get our footing with Wimbledon for a while with the rain, with the delays, with the curfew. But, you know, we've started to get into a rhythm. The weather's held up and uh, we got these matches in, which was good. Yeah, definitely. There was a it was a weird first week because there weren't a lot of shocking results. And we have seen a lot of upsets at Wimbledon. And usually that kind of drives the narrative of the first week of a major. It's not necessarily who won, but it's who lost. And mm. At, at Wimbledon, I think, you know, you, you had the rude loss and, you know, keeping it to the men's side, you had the, the epic Murray matches and the Tsitsipas five setters, but it did feel like a lot of the talk was rain and curfew related because the, the top seeds were performing and taking care of their business for the most yeah. part. Yeah, that's a good point because it's like every major one person loses or a big name loses. You're like, wow, upsets, but the seeds performed better at this Wimbledon than any Wimbledon, probably, you know, quarterfinals. I don't think there was a, a huge outside of Eubanks, which we'll get to. It was pretty much take care of business across the board. I, I, I want to start with the, the guy you devoted an entire podcast to, or seemingly one, Novak Djokovic. Uh, he's into his 11th Wimbledon semifinal, going for his eighth, a record tying eighth with Roger Federer Wimbledon title. And I had this moment watching his matches, and I wanted to get your you know expertise on the situation with Djokovic because We've seen him, I think it's fair to say, play higher level Wimbledon matches. We've seen maybe a little bit more. But what I what I wrote down when I was watching his matches, the Hubie match, even the stand match, and then, you know, getting back against Rublev was it was just classes in session. Like he knows what he has to do out there. He knows how to find a way to win. He knows the geometry of the court. And he knows how to play grass court tennis at a level that, you know, these young, these young pups, these young boys aren't quite there. And you, know, you saw it with some of the post-match analysis and some of his thoughts, but I just think he knows the game, the art of grass court tennis, and that's really what's gotten him to yet another semifinal. Yeah, and, and he's just got everything he needs. There's 
the offensive side of things, which is maybe less talked about, especially because the evolution of his career has made it that we kind of got to know Djokovic as more of this, I don't know, defensive beast, consistency, grinder, court coverage. But you look at his grass court game now, the spot serving is incredible. The percentage first serving is unbelievable. The precision and the damage he does with the plus one is great. He threatens with the drop shot and the net approaches off of that plus one. So offensively, he's a beast. And you look at the first serve win percentages, and they're routinely on grass through the roof. They're like 80% is normal for him on grass. But then you take a, a matchup like Hercotch or you know, a, a matchup like Rublev where, where you're looking at guys who bring different things to the table offensively, Rublev with the power from the baseline and Hercotch oh. with one of the great serving performances you can possibly have. And then it's, okay, let's see what Novak's return can do against Hercotch. Unbelievable returning in the break of serve in the fourth set that he used to, to beat Hercotch. Yeah. Or let's see the court coverage. Nobody moves better. Nobody's more balanced defending on this surface. And, mm -hmm. and that comes in handy because it's like Rublev needs to play instead of three great forehands, four, and he misses the fourth. So it's so uh, there's such a wide range of things he can do on the grass, no doubt. Yeah, the unforced force stairs. I know that's Amy, Amy Wendy's area. I don't want to step on her corner there, but it's what Djokovic does to you. It's, you know, even like the stand match, third set stand played as good as I think I've seen him play on a grass court. Djokovic wins in that tie break. QB served amazing and put himself in such a position in those first two sets. Didn't win any tiebreaker when he had the chance. Rublev, we know, can redline and did redline a bit in that first set, but there is no panic, too. And there is a sense of calmness with Djokovic that maybe he's grown into in, in recent years. I just want to know your take on, you know, because we're starting to see not, not him get arrogant, but, you know, some of the quotes and some of the comments like, look, I'm the old dog and I'm not giving up the yard. Do you think that was kind of always in there or is he just growing into that accepting his role? I do think it was always in there. And I think maybe he wanted to be careful of just not put, applying unnecessary pressure on himself. I think that's the first thing. And we saw, look, I don't, I don't want to make a apples to oranges comparison, but like we saw, for example, Sebastian Corda decided to make some statements before Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's just not a good idea when it comes to your ability to perform because you're putting pressure on yourself. So maybe that was part of why Novak would kind of hold back the arrogance a little bit. But I also think he's starting to understand that that can be appealing in a lot of ways. And Novak, I think in the past has maybe felt like, well, I don't want to ruffle any feathers because I actually, I actually want to get the the mainstream love. I think it's a it's a misconception. Obviously, obviously he wants support. And people like to say he doesn't want support, and it's, it's, there's no evidence for that. Of course he wants the support. We saw how emotional he was at the U.S. Open when he finally got the support in New York. Uh, so, But I, I actually think he was always a little bit off about the effects of confidence and arrogance, and now I think he understands that his fans especially, they love it because it's <laughs> yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, it is. He, he has always had the confidence even before he got to anywhere close to this level. So it's great to see he's going to play Yannick Sinner in the next round. And before we get to Sinner's side of things and, you know, what happened last year in this matchup, what do you think Djokovic can improve? I noticed that second serve, the pace isn't quite what it was. Sinner is, you know, has hit some rips off the second serves of anybody he's played. But 
what can Djokovic level raise? What can he do to improve going into these final two matches, presumably? Good question. Technically speaking, I, I also maybe would have brought up the second serve. Center's going to threaten off of both wings with the power off of the second serve return as well. So w- when you have a guy like like Rublev, um, for example, you can kind of hit second serves to his backhand and they can maybe come in at, at 95 miles per hour and you're probably not going to get punished uh, to, to the fullest extent. But Sinner will not let Novak get away with that. So that's one thing to watch. The, the real answer is it's all about nerves. And I think sometimes if he gets a little tight and the ground stroke quality can dip and the depth can decline, which we've seen in moments in, in some of these tie breaks where it's like, okay, Novak's not really playing with full freedom right now. That's where Sinner can, can have an opportunity to use his power uh, to, to do massive damage. You drop the ball short against Yannick and he's going to make you pay as well as anyone in the world can mm-hmm. make you pay off of those short attackable balls. And Mitch, we saw like last year, or not last year, 2021, when Djokovic was going for the Grand Slam, his match against Shapovalov, his match against Berrettini in the final, there was tightness in those matches. He wasn't playing his best in those matches. And that's kind of Sinner's hope that that Novak gets just a little bit stiff in the arm and that kind of takes away some of the quality. Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, look, we're realists. You're probably going to need him to be off to have a realistic chance if you're not. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the other side of the draw, but for Sinner. So possibilities there. Before we get to Yannick, uh, I hate to bring it up, but Rublev now 0-8 major quarterfinals. And I mean, it's, it's cliche to say, is it mental, is it physical? Because we know what Rublev can do, king of the 500s and all that stuff. But he's gotten to this point and he's gotten denied eight times. What stands out the most about this roadblock, this massive roadblock for a talented player? Well, the way I like to look at it, Mitch, is what your mind can allow you to do is play to your best, the best of your abilities. So this one wasn't mental because I thought Rublev played a great match. And I think that's where, as observers of the game, we need to go a little bit beyond the record and, and kind of watch the match and decide what we're actually seeing. Right. And I think in, in this case, it was like, well, you know, we saw a guy who's technically not good enough to beat Novak Djokovic, even if he plays his best. That was the reality. Uh, if you look at the record, I, I think a lot of matches fall into that category. Now, for sure, he was underperforming in a lot of these matches because, Mitch, he was 0-15 in sets against yeah. top five players Australia, in the quarterfinals. Yeah. Australia, like, I'm not, we wouldn't pick him to beat Djokovic based on the matchup, but he didn't play as well as he did in this one. Right. So exactly. it's a little different there. Yeah. Exactly. He, he underperformed, and, and he has underperformed, honestly, not just in a lot of, you know, major quarterfinals, but even before Monte Carlo and a lot of the Masters finals that he's been in. So there was kind of a big match issue with Rublev. There's no doubt about it. The ones he would want back, though, if you really look at the quarterfinal record, it's Chilich at Roland Garros last year, and it's Tiafo at the U.S. Open last year. Probably even more so Chilich. Now, both of those players, bad matchups in certain ways for Rublev, but those were the ones. Other than that, He's been playing guys who he's not expected to beat. Yeah, that's such a fair point. The sets thing, though, is a little different, too. Like, that that's one where it's like you got to, you know, adrenaline rush push. And he did take a set off Djokovic in this one. So hope to see some some trends, some trending things up in the right direction, things he can work on. Uh, but Djokovic's next opponent, Yannick Sinner. And we can talk about the draw opening up and the breaks going down or breaks going his way, Gil. But Yannick Sinner still had to walk through that door. 
And this is a monumental step for a guy still very young in his tennis career to get to his first major semifinal and to get another crack at Novak Djokovic, who let's say he had on the ropes, but taking two sets off Djokovic in any major match is a huge accomplishment. So Sinner walking through that door, Gil, I think shouldn't be understated enough. Yeah, Sinner had to handle that pressure. And by the way, there wasn't a lot of momentum in his season, which is is weird to say because we wouldn't have said that in April. But Mm. if you looked at all of his events since Monte Carlo, that's where most of the worst losses of his season have occurred in the lead up to Wimbledon and obviously coming off of a a loss to Daniel Altmaier at Roland Garros that was incredibly disappointing. So you're right. He comes into Wimbledon with not a lot of form, a retirement, and the draw opens up. And here's a guy who's got so much expectation on him for his age. Yeah. And you're right. You know, he had to do it. And he's played He's played really good tennis. He has. Although, it's hard to tell how good when, <laughs> yeah, you're, thing. Yeah, when your highest ranked opponent is, uh, I think, 79 in the world, Kontan Alice. It's hard to, you don't get that barometer, that measuring stick. Where do you rank his, and just as a curious question, like he does it, he'd been quarterfinals at every major, every surface. Yeah. So is grass higher on the list, lower on the list? Like where would you put the pecking order of where his game succeeds the most? Good question. I mean, I think the real honest answer is it does not matter. Surface does not, does not matter okay. for center. He plays the exact same, okay. no matter what I surface like he's on. That. Yeah. Look, I think there's similarities with two other players on tour, Rublev and Fritz. It, it just surf these power baseliners are just power baseliners. Uh, and I think there's some nuances about contact points. Like does Rublev have trouble with the low backhand is Fritz's forehand worse from a low contact point than it is a high contact point. You know, there's, there's little nuances there, but in general, Power translates across all surfaces. Big serves translate across all surfaces. And uh, those guys just aren't really having to change their game much from surface to surface. That doesn't, you know, encourage me about his perspective, about his prospects against Djokovic. I'll, I'll, I'll say <laughs> with, with that breakdown, but you know, a guy like Novak on grass, who's going to make you change your game. Gets another crack at him though. And I think in one setting you have Yannick Sitter coming in with his first major semifinal talked about it joked about it said at least give me this moment i made a semi but Djokovic has the experience and has the experience from last year where he knows look i can't exactly mail it in i can't exactly just show up last year he did catch himself behind the eight ball so in a weird way that will probably help Djokovic prepare a little better yeah it, it might it was a strange match last year i don't think there was any tactical adjustment made by novak i just think he he made some surprising sloppy errors in the first two sets. There were a lot of mistakes and Sinner kept it clean. And then in the last three sets, uh, Novak played as clean as a human can possibly play. It was unbelievable how few mistakes Djokovic made in the last three sets. The, The forehand consistency was a big gulf last year. I'm curious to see if it's a big gulf again here. It's just, you know, Djokovic has this incredibly technically sound, compact and precise forehand that he times beautifully. And Sinner brings a ton of power off that wing, but it's just not quite as controlled. It can spray a little bit. He can mistime the ball a little bit more often. And and I'm wondering if we'll see that again. Plus the legs. You know, I, I don't know. Sinner has made a huge improvement from last year to this year, just in terms of his physicality. 
Uh, last year, he was getting injured. He was worn down by the quarterfinals every week. And this year, he's not that guy. But if you look at his five-set record, Mitch, just something to keep in mind coming into the match. Five and six, all five wins were like situations like Altmaier at the U.S. Open last yeah, year where yeah. it's like, where it's like, why are you in a fifth? Yeah. Those are those are all five of the wins. I don't think, yeah, everyone's been talking about Hoger, which we'll touch on, but Sinner's in that sneaky, like, hey, I'm not sure about this guy in a five-set match, too. Very good point to bring up. Also, probably not in his best interest to get in a tiebreaker with Djokovic. I'm just going <laughs> to say that as well. It's become a, an aura thing and, and a mental thing. I actually think that uh, Novak at Wimbledon has been not quite as good in the tiebreaks, and he still keeps winning them. He yeah. wins every every time. It's crazy stuff. Uh, more here with Gil Gross on Tennis Channel Inside and wanted to talk about the other half of the draw and going to give some some love to, you know, the guy that was eliminated recently. But Chris Eubanks going on that run, Gil, was just a remarkable set of circumstances. Hadn't even won a main draw match in any Grand Slam until last year's U.S. Open. And he gives the Neil Medvedev after beating Sitsipas, after beating Cam Nori, all Medvedev can handle, loses in a fifth set. It's just really fun to see, you know, a, a good guy, you know, someone that we know at Tennis Channel do so well, but also see someone's game kind of all come together on the biggest stage of them all. Was there, I guess for you, the question is, how shocking is it that a player like him, a game like that could come together and look, you know, as potent as anyone on that grass? I, I can't say I saw it coming, but if you're going to tell me that a 27-year-old is going to suddenly just flip a switch and and be someone who he wasn't for the, the the previous parts of his career, I would have told you that, oh, well, said 27-year-old is probably a six-foot-seven guy who has this laundry list of tools to work with and just had to figure out his identity on court and when to use what and yeah. and how to you know take care of his body and I, I just think big guys, offensive players, one-handed backhands, they're all kind those are all areas where I think it takes some time. And th my favorite part about the the Wimbledon run for for Eubanks is just that everything he's doing is on his own terms. He he's not he's not relying on his opponents to miss at any step of the way. He's pulling off these upsets. He's pushing Medvedev on his own terms. And that's been incredible to watch. I think he set a, a record at Wimbledon for most winners. He did. He broke Andre's Andre Agassi's record for most return winners in, in a tournament. Didn't even make the semifinals doing it. That that clean one-handed backhand. You know, I guess uh, next time I see him, I'm gonna have to be like, where did that come from? Because it had some easy power on it. But my my other big big point on this skill is that maybe grass. And maybe this is kind of hot takey, but. The players don't have as many reps on grass. So if it's going to come together for players, maybe we should not expect this, but grass will be the surface where if it all comes together in a flash, it would be here because the season is so short. Yeah. Uh, we saw, I, I don't, I'm not making an apples to apples comparison once again, but we saw like Tim Von Reithoven last year. That was an unbelievable run where he beat Fritz. He beat Medvedev. He beat another FAA. He beat. And, uh, another one-handed backhand hyper-offensive game. Now, obviously, Chris is going to look to to follow that up and build on that um, better than, than Von Reithoven did. But um, I would say... I would say it is a surface where you can have 
I don't think it's capitalizing on a weaker field. I really, I don't think it's that, but I think there are certain weapons that can be really great on grass, um, like a chip and charge return that Eubanks, a guy like Eubanks is, is utilizing on a regular basis that guys aren't used to seeing and on grass, it's just working super, super well. Yeah, I mean, it was a life-changing run for him into the top, like 31, I think, in the live rank now and, you know, is, is going to get seated and has some life-changing money, which is good, unless you're like Novak Djokovic or I think like Kevin Costner's ex-wife, it's life-changing money. But anyway, uh, he loses the Medvedev and I want to point out with Daniil Medvedev, you know, he battles, he gets to another major semi, he gets to one on on his, not one of his favorite, not his his favorite surf. I don't think there's anyone Gil that plays the dead cat game better than him. Cause it's always like, he's acting like, Oh, I'm checking out. I'm, I'm going South. This is, this is very tactic like to me, cause he is in the fight and stays engaged. And I thought even when all the theatrics was going, he played a tight, big point, heavy, brave tie break and uh, one going away in the fifth. So props to Daniel Medvedev. He's just so match tough out there. Toughness is, is a great word because not a lot of guys are as comfortable sticking with their game plan, sticking with their guns and doing, you know, trusting their defense, trusting their movement and their counter punching and just being like, I'm just going to stick with it and it'll start to work as if I execute it. And it doesn't matter what surface I'm on and it doesn't matter who I'm playing. And more on that probably later, if you want to talk about the Alcaraz match, because I have a point about that. No, we, we can get to that. I just wanted to give Medvedev his love because what he's doing and, you know, the standard he set for himself on the hard courts, it'll be impossible for him to achieve that on other surfaces, but he's not a scrub on clay and he's certainly not a scrub on grass and he gets to no. a semifinal and he just continues to play at a level that is baseline as good as anyone. So uh, props to him. Alcaraz is who he meets in the semifinal. Another guy who like all worldly talent. We were wondering, when is it going to come together on grass? Is it going to take some time? Well, here he is in the Wimbledon semifinals. So not as much time needed for Carlos. Uh, the Holger match, let's start there. He did, I think Carlos did what he needed to do. And I think the the underrated part for me, Gil, is that it was a little Djokovic-like. And this is where I would draw a comparison. He plays big points pretty smart. Like you'll watch the highlights and you'll see all the hot shots and all the amazing movement he can do. But I think he has a very smart understanding for how to play big points. Maybe after the first set when he calmed down. Yeah. Was, uh, I thought, you know, there were, I think nerves were really the big story in the first set where it was like, I think there were five love 30s and it felt like the returner every single time would kind of have a panic attack at love 30 and, yeah. and their level would drop and then we would get a hold and then we went to the tie break. Uh, but Alcaraz has totally improved in that area this year, Mitch. I, I think that. Juan Carlos Ferrero has has gotten into his head of just when to pull back just a little bit. And I think when we were first watching Alcaraz make his rise, let's say last March, uh, one of the things that was so impressive was, wow, so brave in these big moments. Like you're playing drop shots on the biggest points of the match. You're going after it, the biggest points of the match. And uh, all that stuff was good. But then I think recognizing when the arm is is a little bit tighter and you're actually feeling the pressure when to get consistent when to get solid mm -hmm. and i now think alcaraz at least has that gear 
even though on the grass, I think he's going to be even less likely to, to, to use that gear. I think that's been a big improvement this year for him though. Yeah. It reminded me of a certain Greek player that might not, you know, be playing, <laughs> might not be playing the score as well as he should at times, but I agree. I think Ferrero, I mean, the work that they've done together has just been very tremendous. And on Holger's side, just to touch on him, he's, you know, he gets criticized a lot and we all know that there's validity to it. I think he's saying and behaving the right way in post-match. Like he acknowledged a, a real problem. I need to be in the fight longer and more consistent. Because as great as he is, and he looks great, he looks as good as Alcaraz at times, there are stretches in these matches where he just goes away. Mentally, he's in a different place. And you can't, like he acknowledges it. I can't do that and expect to win against the very best. I don't think Holger's ever said anything in a press conference that, that has contributed to his reputation. That's the thing. It's all on court. It's always during, it's yeah. during match stuff which is fascinating because most players, it, it maybe is the opposite. Yeah, I think that Runa is, is not a consistent match player at all yet, mentally or physically. Uh, we've talked about the, the physical ups and downs. I, I guess in this match, because let's, let's be tangible about it and, and talk about you know, details and provide evidence. Like For me, it was the return of serve where he seemed a little bit checked out on the tactics there where he was getting jammed up in the body on every second serve return and just never moved back. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, match point was a second serve that he just pushed long and it wasn't there. I, he's still like, and again, we fall into this trap too, right? Like you can't compare everyone to Alcaraz. You can't compare players to Djokovic. Oh, this is a, this is a crazy expectation to have. So I'm, I'm still in the belief that he will figure most of this stuff out. The question is how quickly and is it going to be good enough to challenge a player like Alcaraz that's going to be improving, we think, on the way up too. Yeah, exactly. He's he's 20. And that's why I uh, I predicted him before the year. It's always YouTube comments, Mitch. That's how I understand the, yeah. the tennis community discourse. I predicted him to finish uh, year-end, I think, number eight. I think, yeah, I think it was number eight or, or something like that. And that was considered a, a low prediction. Only one and spot up or so, two, one or two spots up from last year. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm like, look, this is hard. It, it's, he's 20. It's not easy to get into the top five. He might do it. He might prove me wrong. I'm not even saying that I'm going to be right. Uh, but the fact that because of maybe what Alcaraz did, it's like, whoa, you don't think Runa's about to be top five? It's like, wait that's that's the baseline like i'm giving a you're really saying that i'm Youngest giving a number one of all time <laughs> right a pessimistic yeah. prediction is that a 20 year old is going to finish eight in the world really so that's where there is uh sometimes a lack of perspective well i think it's at least encouraging to hear him say the right things it's very encouraging to see matteo berrettini back and playing at a high level Alcaraz match wasn't his best, went through a lot though to get there. And just to, to see it and to also hear him say it, that look, I was in a bad place physically, mentally. That match was, you know, he got joy out of competing at the highest level and he loves being back out there. And I think on the grass, especially, I me mean, showed you why he showed you in the Senego match and what he did to Demon Hour, Zverev, that Berrettini still has a lot of good tennis in front of him. It's good to see him getting back on the right track. There's also been a lot of unfair 
criticism levied at him, you know, with his sponsorships and his modeling and the Hugo boss, because, you know, that kind of happened. And then some bad results came and people were like, Hey buddy, why don't you focus on tennis? Why don't, why don't you care about, yeah. yeah, yeah. Why don't you care about tennis anymore? And it's like, come on guys, I'd like to see you turn down those paychecks. And I just hope that, I just hope that what Berrettini has opened up about will dispel any notion that this guy doesn't want it bad, isn't fully committed to playing winning tennis. And uh, the fact that he's on a Hugo Boss poster shouldn't shouldn't change that perception at all. Mitch, it's phenomenal how well he played given you know the time that, that he missed in the lead up. And uh, against Alcaraz, I'll say, the return of serve was, was unbelievable. And that's the thing with Berrettini bringing it back to the tennis is when he's playing the elite, and they are neutralizing his first serve, then what? The, the then what is tough for him. And I don't know how much he'll ever really be able to do against players who are returning his serve well. It's a ceiling issue, but hey, we're talking about the very best that give him these problems. So something yeah. to see there. And before we wrap this up with Gil Gross, just want to fight through a few couple of quick things. Uh, not the best for the American men. We had Eubanks, obviously, but you know, subpar losses for Tiafo and Fritz. Paul lost Corda. in court, of course, Corda. Paul lost to your guy, Yuri Oheka. Not a bad loss. That, that match was actually great. It was just a great match, but a tough one for Paul. So, you know, Eubanks notwithstanding, the American men came into Wimbledon and, and they leave, you know, not meeting their expectations. Was that surprising on your end to see the collective, you know, un, unproven results, you know, not achieving what they wanted? Yeah, kind of shocking to me. I thought Corda had draw opportunity, and I really liked Seb coming into Wimbledon just based on what I saw from him this year when healthy, where, you know, I was thinking about Adelaide. I was thinking about the Australian Open and Queens, and I'm like, whoa, when, when this dude has been at his best, he's been like a top 10 player. So I was really high on Corda. Fritz, he had a good grass court season last year, and I knew that the early rounds might be shaky for him. I thought, you know, Yannick Hoffman, that's a tough unseeded player to play first round. He got through that and I'm like, whoa, okay, now, now we're in business. Yeah. And then he's two sets to love up against Michael Lemer. I still don't fully understand what happened in that match. Uh, so Fritz, yeah, surprising. And then Tiafo, I think Grigor was playing tremendous ball, but also, you know, it seemed like, and especially reading what Francis had to say about it, uh, it seemed like Tiafo just had a, a mystifyingly bad two days, which yeah. was part of why it was so surprising because it was over two days. Yeah, it was brutal for him, and he admits it. And that was shocking that when action picked up down in the second set, he still didn't have much. So we hope those guys bounce back. Uh, I also got to point out another one of your players that you mentioned the last time you are on this show. Uh, Fakina, where are we at with serves <laughs> in general at 8-8 in a match tiebreak? <laughs> Uh, we are, we are number one in the world at losing at Wimbledon in creative ways. That, yeah, that's where we're at next year. Honestly, like I'm, <laughs> just, I'm, I'm on my toes. That, that was so bizarre, right? Like I know, I know tactically and I know it's like, okay, do what you want and we can debate, but this, but doing it then was the problem that I had. And I think a lot of people had like, you're gonna do this at eight all against Holger. It's always questionable tactically. I think from where, where you and I agree, Mitch, is that from a sportsmanship thing, it's a non-issue. That's where you and I are on the same page. But tactically, it's never smart. And here's how I explain it. 
and I know, you know, this isn't necessarily the point. It's the fact that he was just nervous at eight all, but for the sake of conversation, let's break down that let's break this down. What makes a good drop shot? Let's start with disguise. Can you disguise an underarm serve? Does it look anything like an actual serve? No, no, it, it looks nothing. So you're, you're never going to disguise that shot. Well, you can get it off quickly, but still it doesn't really work. All right. What about your opponent's court position? First of all, look where Runa was standing. Not that far back, not that far back, but also you have a player who's literally in a ready position to return the serve. You're never going to get a player leaning back. You're never going to player going to get a player leaning left or right or off balance. They're perfectly on balance when you hit it. Plus you're on the baseline. You can't, you cannot hit an underhand serve from where it's great to hit drop shots from, which is inside the court. So all of these, if you just break down what makes a drop shot effective, and then you translate it to, can that work on a serve? It's like, no, 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 no. That's very well put. Uh, yeah, I think you'd be better off maybe going behind his back, like walking to the service line, just trying to sneak one in that way, or even pointing into the crowd, like, hey, what's that? And then maybe getting him to turn <laughs> uh, But hey, tremendous player. We'll see what happens there. Uh, Gil, this has been fun. Last thing, I guess, on the semis, do you feel like we're trending towards that Alcaraz-Djokovic final? I mean, both of them are pretty solid favorites. Medvedev seems to be a little bit of a stiffer test, but are we trending that way? I do, Mitch. First of all, you're very much in the... The three, three, my, you know, the podcast about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We don't get too much about like prediction. Who do we think is going to win? Like, we like to talk about the match. That's you know, how I just, do it. Yeah. And as a fan, I love it. Show too, we don't want to just, you know, we also want to cover our bases too. I don't want to be like, I guarantee it. And then I come on and I'm like, well, I was wrong again. <laughs> exactly. So, so kudos. You know, we're on the same page there. But, but here's, what I think about the semis, yes, I do think we have a Djokovic Alcaraz final. Um, when it comes to Medvedev, credit to him for staying true to himself, but I still think the fact that he has not added any extra aggression in his game, that he has not adjusted his court position whatsoever, it's going to get him in trouble against an elite offensive rep repertoire. It almost got him in trouble against an excellent offensive repertoire in in Chris Eubanks and I think Alcaraz can do all of those things just as well and uh, I I really I think Carlitos is going to take it to him and take advantage of uh, some of those positional downfalls and then uh, when it comes to center Djokovic it's it's a little bit less tactical you know it comes down to mentally Novak stronger physically Novak stronger you know pace absorption wise like when players try to attack Djokovic with linear pace that doesn't work all that well. So, you know, just classic kind of Djokovic situation where you, you have trouble seeing where the cracks are going to ultimately be. Well, I can't wait. If we get that final, it'll be a phenomenal matchup. Hopefully we get, you know, both players in full form. If not, if there is an upset, that's good too, because these are all just quality players. So Gil, appreciate you coming on the show. We'll have to check in down the road and see where we are in the state of tennis, but a good place right now with Djokovic going for Gosh, major number 24 and one more away from a calendar slam situation. It'd be pretty remarkable. But Gil, always reliable, always steady, kind of like Alexander Volkanovsky on this show. So mm, wonderful compliment. Pound for pound, number one. Hey, I'm, I don't weigh a lot, so I have a shot at pound for pound. Oh, I think until vote goes up, maybe. Maybe we can get you in there. He's looking for featherweight opponent. <laughs> Anytime, right. Mitch. Anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on Inside In.
And that's it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you to Lindsay Davenport. Thank you to Joe Gross. And especially thank you to everybody out there for listening to this show. Tennis Channel Inside In can be found on all your podcast platforms. Whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, Google, whatever your preference is, just search Tennis Channel Inside In, subscribe, leave a rating, a review, get easily accessible episodes downloaded automatically to your phone, to your tablet, wherever you listen. Check us out on the tennis.com website, tennis.com slash podcast, the entire catalog of episodes and different shows on our network. We're back next week to recap the Wimbledon championships, discuss who's hoisting the trophies, who is going to write their name in the history books, maybe for the eighth time, maybe for the first time. All that and more on Tennis Channel Inside and back next week. My name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for both guests. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.